0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Now, as we as we uh, transition to Genesis chapter nine, we're finishing Noah's story today, and I, I want us to kind of zoom in on it and see uh, what God does in the covenant that He makes with Noah. And so, um, it is it is. Uh, signified by a rainbow, right? Most of us have heard this story. In Sunday school at some point, there's a global flood, a catastrophe, kills everyone. Noah survives with his wife, his three sons, his three daughters-in-law by going into the ark. And after they get off the ark, he worships God. God makes a covenant with him that he'll never again flood the entire earth and seals that covenant with a sign that's a rainbow, Now, if you've ever seen a rainbow, and I hope you have, um, if you haven't, I would love to be with you when you see a rainbow. That would be cool. Um, But if you've you've ever seen a rainbow and not mentioned it to the people around you, you're a clinical psychopath, right? Like, it is just impossible, I think, humanly, to see a rainbow. Like, you're just riding in a car, and you look out the window, and you see a rainbow— and not tell the rest of the people in the car, like you would be certifiably insane, right? Um, you have to talk about it. Uh, maybe not always take a picture of it, maybe not always make a long YouTube video about a double rainbow, but you have to at least talk about it. And um, and so we're gonna see the origins of the rainbow in Genesis 9 and why God gives us the sign of the rainbow. It's been hijacked uh, today by the LGBTQ community, by Jeff Gordon, by Skittles, uh, by leprechauns, but we're gonna see what God's intention Is for the rainbow and what it is a sign of. I have three sermon points for you. We'll look at creation um, and how God reestablishes his order of creation after the flood. We'll look at the covenant, the promise that God makes with his creation. And then finally, we'll look at the curse that comes, um, the not-so-happy ending of uh, Genesis chapter 9. So let's look at creation first. Genesis 9 looks a whole lot like Genesis 2. a matter of fact, if you've got um, a a physical Bible um, in your hand today or a journal, um, it it would be interesting during the sermon, you can kind of flip back and forth and just make some observations of the similarities between Genesis 9 and Genesis 2, or maybe you could study that this week. The recreation mandate. Um, uh, in Genesis 9, mirrors the creation mandate in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. The first command to Adam to multiply and fill the earth is the same command that's given to Noah when he gets off the ark. In Genesis 9-1, God blesses Noah and says, uh, and his sons and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, uh, What what God is doing is he is reestablishing his order. He's reestablishing his sovereignty, his kingship over creation um, with the eight humans that survived the flood as the rightful worshipers of the one true God. And he begins to um, reestablish the the command that he gave to Adam that his descendants did not obey. Um, Now, I've seen lots of people question God's morality um, in the flood. And I think it's fair. I think it's understandable. I've seen TikTok videos and YouTube videos of of people saying, well, how could God be loving if, if, if you believe in a God who wiped out literally every person on the planet except for eight? How could God kill so many people and send them to hell and still be loving? Now, this isn't just a question about the past. If you ask that question or if you have people in your life who ask that question, it's a valid question, but we have to acknowledge it's not just a question about the past. It's a question about the present. How does God send people to hell, not just in the past, thousands of years ago with the flood, but today? Because we as Christians have to acknowledge that this happens every single day. Hell is being enlarged as we sit here today. Happens every day. And it should absolutely break our hearts And instead of saying, how on earth could God send people to hell? Rather, as Christians, our worldview is different. We say, how on earth could God save so many people who deserve hell? How on earth could God be so long-suffering and patient with sinners who deserve nothing but damnation? Hell is being enlarged as we speak truly. And it was enlarged throughout history, but it breaks our heart. And it doesn't have to be this way. D.L. Moody said, no one should ever preach on the topic of hell without a tear in his eye. And so when, when people say, how could God kill so many people? We acknowledge the heartbreak of the rebellion of man and the depravity of our souls. But we acknowledge we're asking the wrong question. Instead, we should be saying, how is God so patient with so many sinners? Now, in the context of Genesis, in the days of Noah, not only is he being patient with someone's maybe 90-year lifespan if they live to old age, But he's being patient and long-suffering and giving them opportunities to repent and become worshipers over 10 times that period. They were living to ages 8 and 900 years of age, and and God is slow and long-suffering and patient, giving them multiple, not decades, but centuries of opportunities to repent and follow him. Second Peter 3, 9 speaks of this when it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What God has done is, in creation is he has created in love, and his children that he has created have rebelled against him, and he patiently beckons his creation to repent and return the love back to their creator. He is truly the God of many chances. Amen. And mankind has just continually shaken their fists at God, have grown depraved and desperately wicked, yet God continues to sustain and give opportunity and patience and grace. And he gives Noah here in chapter 9, he gives him all the dominion graciously that Adam was given. In verse 2, he says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So dominion is what God gives to mankind that that keeps beasts from killing us. Right? I I saw a, a hilarious TikTok video of a bear um, breaking into a car and humans yelling at the bear. And y'all ever seen a bear walk on two legs? It's just funny. And he like slowly backs away from the car. Um, the other day I was leaving my house and there was a possum outside and it wasn't just a normal possum. It was a possum that looked like it overslept. And and I had also overslept and we just like made eye contact me and this possum. And he started to run into my garage and I was like, that's not good. That should not happen. And so I just like get out of my truck and I'm like, possum get out of my garage and he ran from me because he saw a human that had overslept and he's like that's terrifying there you go and um and and so he's like that's scary and so the possum ran away and thankfully didn't try to you know jump on me and kill me but the dominion that men have over beasts and over animals is outlined here by God and it and it It keeps the beast from killing us. It allows man to have dominion in the sense of we bridle horses, we employ oxen, uh, we harvest things like eggs and meat and dairy. Um, And here God says, all of these animals are given into your hands, Um, which means uh, God here approves of the eating of meat. Amen. Can I get a witness that it is good and right for us to enjoy bacon? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. My wife one time decided she was going to be a vegetarian, and I was like, you know what? We're partners in life. We're in this together. I'm with you, honey. I didn't make it 24 hours. I just realized everything sucks without meat added into it. Um, I'll eat a salad, but I want chicken in my salad, right? It's like, I I just have to have it. And and, and as we look at this, I mean, I don't want us to get into the weeds too much, but there's no reason to think that people were never eating meat before the flood. It wasn't like it didn't occur to man that... Maybe we could you know throw this on a grill and eat it. Um, it had happened before. There was lots of animal death. we know that. Um, there, was, there was animal sacrifice even to please God. Um, Noah seemingly knows to kill an animal and sacrifice it to God. Abel, of course, um, gives the first example of that in Genesis four. Um, and so there was animal death. I would even maybe say that they were also eating animals before the flood, but nevertheless, God affirms that it's OK um, after they get off the boat. So maybe Noah was a vegetarian. Maybe his family was. Um, I would assume that everyone was eating animals, um, maybe except Noah's family, but he makes it clear here that you can eat animals. But there's a specific caveat that I think has theological significance that I think is the reason that this is included. And the caveat is a given that that when they eat animals, that the animals were to be cleaned, prepared, and cooked, Um, not eaten savagely like another animal. Not just, like, you can't just pick up an opossum and just, like, bite into it, right? He's like, no, you can't eat an animal like that in the blood. And the reason why is because blood has theological significance, and God is beginning to progressively reveal what he's doing and and explaining to his creation. We see it in verse 4. He says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, this can be a little bit of a confusing portion of Scripture. But what God is speaking of is the murder or the death of men. In verse 5, when it says, for your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning, um, is saying that if anyone kills a man, whether man or beast, that that man or beast should be punished for killing because God made man in his image. Um, literally, uh, what, what he's saying is, for your blood being spilt, I will require blood. Uh, the word reckoning in English is not even in the Hebrew. It's, it's hard to translate, but uh, verse 6 turns into poetry. And again, mirroring Genesis chapter 2, just like there's poetry in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, remember that's when Adam falls asleep, and he wakes up, and there's a naked woman there, and so he begins freestyle singing. And he sings, and he says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here in chapter 9, God sings and gives poetic language, and he says, the blood of man leads to man's bloodshed. Again, there's a theological importance and significance to this as God is revealing his, um, his marketplace of sin, like the Proto-Evangelion, which means first gospel, like that, um, as God told Eve, your offspring will one day crush the head of the serpent, your tempter. Here God is given a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. A blood reckoning will be required to save from sin. The principle is that sin always requires a reckoning by blood or or an atonement or a payment by blood because, he says, life is in the blood. Moses, who wrote Genesis, further explains this in Leviticus 17, another book that he wrote, um, verse 11, it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God is showing the penalty of sin and the cost of redemption. And it is blood. We, of course, on the other side of the cross, know that that is ultimately fulfilled. The reason we don't sacrifice animals every time we come to church is because Jesus has fulfilled this perfectly for us on the cross. When he shed all of his blood to pay for our sins and gave his life so that we could receive eternal life. And so the pattern is set out that God creates, God commands, there's a foreshadowing of a promise, and then the command is repeated for man to obey. In Genesis 9-7, God says again, be fruitful and multiply increase greatly on the earth and multiply. And it's the same thing that God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He repeats it to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 35, he speaks it to a man um, whom he changes his name to Israel, who becomes a great nation. He tells that nation to multiply um, and become numerous so that God can receive glory. And spiritually speaking, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the same command Jesus gives to his followers to go forward and multiply on the face of the earth. Jesus says. Go unto all nations, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we, too, carry out the same command. God's purpose for man is that we would be numerous in obedience, that that the world would be filled of of people created in God's image, living in obedience to bring glory to him. It's God's plan, and it's coming to fruition. And it has to come through covenant, has to come to fruition through covenant because what you'll see over and over in the Bible is that man screws it up every time, every single time. And so God works through covenants, uh, which is point two. Now, say if you ever want your kids to never forget something, like they just become elephants that never forget. Um, if, if they have something they want and you use the words, I promise to them. They will never forget it. Um, and I, and I'm the kind of dad I tend to over promise and under deliver. Um, if, if I'm busy with something, they can want something. I can be like, not now. I'm too busy. I don't have time. And I'll, be like, I'll promise I'll do it later. Not realizing the check I'm writing that my buck can't cash. Right. And, um, and, and so then they'll, you know, they'll show up and be like, you said you were taking me to get sushi and I don't have the money for sushi. And I'm just like, yeah, too bad. We can't. And they're like, but dad, you promised. Right. And so then I have to deliver on that promise. I have to, you know, Know, get a loan from my dad or something, and make it happen okay um, but but i as a as a flawed father, forget my promises. Um, and fail to deliver. But God has revealed himself as a perfect father who makes promises unconditionally and never forgets them and never fails to deliver on them. And now Noah gets a promise from God that he does not ask for, that he does not initiate. What's most important in all of scripture as we see the covenants of God, they're always initiated by God. Your theology will be jacked up and messed up if you think that man is initiating all the promises of God, that God is making promises because man has sought him out. The reality is is that no man seeks after God. It only happens because God seeks after him first. First John 4 19 says, We love him because he first loved us. And so every promise of God is initiated by God. Man doesn't even know that we need this promise, and God initiates it and says, You need this promise, and I will stand by it and fulfill it in grace. Noah gets a promise in verse, verses eight through eleven. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant, that's promise, my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." It's a beautiful promise that's given, initiated by God, and it applies to us. Because we are the offspring of Noah. All of us, um, if we trace our, you know, if we go on those like Mormon websites and trace our ancestry back far enough, um, and you know, you swab your mouth and send it to the lab and stuff, if we could go back far enough, all of us would find our lineage uh, rooted in the family of Noah. And so we are the offspring of Noah, and that's still in effect for us today. God's eternal promise that he will uh, by no means flood the earth uh, with water. Now, some would say when they look at Noah's day and the fact that God poured out this great wrath on the earth that, man, uh, the sin of Noah's day must have been exceptionally bad. Like, every, like they must have been doing stuff that's just like we would never do. Um, I, I don't tend to think of the sin of Noah's day to be exceptionally great. I intend think to think that God's grace for our day is exceptionally great. That God has, in this covenant, restrained himself so much that he is withholding the wrath that, that should rightly fall upon us. Uh, this week, uh, I, there's, there's a guy named Ryan who's been attending here, and he's a geologist. And he came over for dinner this week, and we got to talk about geology. And I was like, man, we should have had dinner before I started preaching about the flood. Um, he was telling me about how much water is just in the earth's core and, and underground and things. Um, really fascinating stuff. But, but the idea here, I think that God is communicating, is that at any moment... And justly at any moment, all of the fountains of the deep that we see break open and burst forth in Genesis 7 and 8 could happen again and really theologically and morally should happen again because of our sin. But because of God's promise and his grace, he withholds it. His grace, if you, if you think of it like a dam holding back water, that, that his grace is like the dam that holds back wrath from us. And it's not because we're doing our best. It's not because we're trying really hard. God himself mentions in 821, the previous chapter, when Noah offers an offering in worship, it says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I don't want to pass over that. That doesn't make sense to us. It only makes sense in God's economy. God doesn't say, I'm not going to curse the ground anymore and I'm not going to send the flood anymore because I know you guys are going to do good this time. I know you're going to try really hard. God says, I'm not going to curse anymore because man's heart is evil from his youth. It it doesn't even sound like a logical reason, but what God is setting up is the covenant that comes in chapter 9 that I'm going to withhold wrath in spite of the fact that their hearts are going to be evil from their youth. It's an opportunity for God to display his grace in a greater way. You see, some of us will look at the flood and, and look at God's recreation after the flood, and we almost think of it as like God made a big oopsie-daisy and he just wanted to start over, right? He's like, whoops, they got out of control. It would be better if I just start over. Uh, well, so that's not exactly what's happening, right? Um, my wife and I had some friends over one time. We did a Bob Ross night, Um, If you don't know what that is, you should do it, first of all. Um, but we, we got a Bob Ross video. We went to Hobby Lobby and bought some canvases and some paints and stuff, and we got Afro wigs, and we put a YouTube video of Bob Ross on, and he's painting happy little mistakes and stuff. And we, you know, get a charcuterie board and try to follow along and paint what he's painting. And um, And I'm looking at mine, and I'm looking at Bob's, right? And they look nothing alike. And I'm looking at my canvas, and I'm like, did we get more canvases? Are there extras in the kitchen? Because... I, there's no redeeming this mess that I've made. And Bob's like, yeah, if you mess up, just go, just do this. And it doesn't make any sense to me, right? And, and so in my flesh, I'm like, I just want to throw mine away and start over. And we tend to look at the flood and think that that's what God was doing. That God just messed up, had a happy little mistake with creation, and he just wanted to throw everything away and start over. That is not what's happening with the global flood. Instead, what God is doing is showing mankind In intense patience, this is why men lived so long before the flood. In an intense act of patience and long-suffering, he is showing them the results of what happens when you live your whole life in sin. It ends in catastrophe and wrath and destruction. He's given us this visible display of the very real and just punishment of sin. He knew that sin had a grip on humanity, and the wrath of the flood... Its intention was not so God got a do-over. Its intention was that we would have a teacher in it that would teach us the severity of our sin. And then as a sign of the covenant, when he says he won't do it again, God gives the rainbow as a reminder. Now, I used to look at the rainbow. And when I saw it, you know, I'm riding in the car and I tell everyone, look at the rainbow. I used to look at it and I used to think, that's really cool. That's a really cool reminder that we'll never have a global flood again. And it is that. But let me submit to you that it's more than that. When, when we see the rainbow, we should say to ourselves, God is currently and actively sustaining me. Not just that there's not going to be a global flood, but the only reason I am still alive is because God is actively keeping me alive and withholding the just wrath from me. That that God has every right to cast me to hell right now. In this moment, I should be in hell right now. Yet God's covenant and grace with me that I don't deserve is withholding all of that wrath from me. Like a dam of grace, he is keeping me going. Withholding very just and very rightful wrath that I deserve. That's what the rainbow means. That's what it's a reminder of. That's what the whole catastrophe of the flood is meant to teach us of God's patience and long suffering. This is a gracious thing that God does, right? Because imagine you've just survived a global flood. You guys heard the thunder a minute ago? Every time it thundered, can you imagine what they would feel if there wasn't like an explicit promise from God? Like a, you hear a thunderclap and you're like, oh, Jim, let's get back in the ark, right? We got to put the thing back together and you know, seal the door up. But, but what God has done is he's, he's, he's comforted them and he says when it begins to rain, rain's no longer going to be a curse for you. Rain is going to make your crops grow. Rain is going to become necessary. Rain is going to actually turn into a blessing for you that I'm carrying for you. And I'm going to put this bow in the clouds to remind you that I'm taking care of you. You see, all covenants have a sign. Um, We have one that we use very commonly when we get married. If you're married, you probably have a ring on your finger right now that reminds you of a promise you made. You stood in front of witnesses and made vows to your spouse and that ring serves as a sign of the covenant. Mine's tattooed on, my wife says, so, it can, so I can wave at single women because they didn't tattoo the bottom of my finger. But when I look at the top of my finger, I can see on my knuckle that I'm married and I made promises to her, right? In the, Abra- or in the, in the Adamic covenant, um, when Adam and Eve sinned and God gives them a covenant of grace, he clothes their nakedness graciously, gives them a sign of that. In the Abrahamic covenant, um, when God tells Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations, he marks the Jews' reproductive organ in circumcision, giving them a very physical reminder of the blessing of reproduction that he is going to give to them. In the new covenant, in the the New Testament of the scriptures, we are given two Covenantal signs in the church called baptism and communion that we observe to remind us of God's promises to us. And here in the Noahic covenant, God gives a rainbow to remind all the people of the earth that He is withholding wrath, that He's being patient, that He is sustaining them. It's a covenant of peace. Sally Lloyd Jones, I think, puts it best in a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And she writes, like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I've hung, my, I've hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light, a rainbow. You see, God's signs give us a reminder of God's promises. And this is just one reason why we take communion every single week at our church reason we do that is the same reason if you're married, you wear a wedding ring because you need reminded of that because you're a messed up person and you like to sin. And we have a reminder every week as we come to a table and see bread that represents Jesus's torn flesh as he sacrificed his body and juice that represents his shed blood that paid for our sins. We have that as a visible reminder to tangibly show us so we can tangibly even taste Uh, what it took for us to be adopted into God's family because we need to be reminded of the gospel continually. We need God's atonement. We need to be reminded of God's forgiveness. Sally Lloyd-Jones continues by saying, God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. You see, the rainbow is a reminder that wrath was not rained down on you and I. And it won't be. Wrath instead was rained down upon the Son, Jesus Christ, in our place. That's the good news of the gospel. And man, wouldn't that be a happy ending for Noah's story? We're almost done with Noah, and that would be a great place to end it. But as most stories of the Bible go... We're going to end on, a, on an unhappy note, on a curse. And so that's point three. In verses 18 through 20, we, we, we see just kind of a brief narrative of what happens after this covenant is initiated. This is the sons of Noah went forth from the ark. Uh, they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil... And he planted a vineyard. Now, this just sounds lovely, doesn't it? Noah puts on a sun hat. He's an old man. He goes, plants a vineyard. He's eating grapes and just enjoying the sunshine. This would be a great, happy ending, but unfortunately, this ain't Disney. Okay? And, um, and the Bible characters seem to never just live happily ever after. They can never just do that. As you read through the Bible, if you, if you like Disney, if you're a Disney adult like the Wheelers are, you, you want to see that, that ride off into the sunset moment, right? And every time it seems like the characters of the Bible almost have it, then they screw it up, right? It leaves us, as we read the Bible, frustrated. But more importantly, where it leaves us is leaving only one hero in Scripture it's not Noah. It's not Moses, it's not Abraham, it's not Adam. It's none of these patriarchal figures that the Bible shows us. It's actually their failures point us to the one true hero of the Bible, and his name is Jesus. And that's why when Jesus comes and begins to teach, he says, all scriptures testify of me. And he fulfills all scripture. And so this leaves room for only Jesus to be the hero of of the narrative of the Bible. That's why in this sermon series, we didn't just name it saints. We named it saints and villains. And it's not just the good guys fighting the bad guys. It's the good guys are the bad guys, both at the same time. And that is a beautiful picture of who you are. If you've trusted in Jesus, repented of your sins, the Bible calls you a saint. The Greek word means hagios. It means to be holy. You are a saint. You're seen as righteous. But guess what? You're a villain too. You are your own worst enemy. And your flesh and your sin drag you back into the very thing that God has redeemed and saved you from. And Noah has a really good story up until, this, until, up until verse 21. It says that he found favor with God. It says that he obeyed everything that God commanded him. He demonstrated incredible faith. And then in verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. That got inappropriate really quickly, right? We went from Walt Disney to Jerry Springer in one verse. That's, that's the Bible. That's how it goes. <laughs> and this is the story of the Bible because man is enslaved to sin. And God won't share his glory with any self-righteous person. And even Noah, in all of his righteousness, uh, mars his legacy uh, by, by chasing after his own fleshly pleasure. Now again... I want to remind you that Moses is writing a theological framework for our origin story. And and he's demonstrating from his standpoint in time what would have been most significant to the readers at his time. And so for us to really understand what what Moses is doing and telling the story of Noah, we have to understand when this was written. And, And Moses at his time... The, the public enemy number one for Israel were, were the Canaanites, which is why he says when he introduces Ham, parenthetical statement, he was the father of Canaan. Um, he continues on uh, demonstrating and, and uh, detailing this curse that came upon Canaan. And it says, "...and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside." Now, now, we're not given a lot of detail, but evidently this was a mockery. Um, Ham was making a mockery of his father, who was in sin and wrong. Uh, The Bible condemns drunkenness. um, But here, Ham acts sinfully, and it says in verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Kind of a weird ending, I get it. But what's God showing us in this? Um, Well, first thing he's showing us is that sin is still very prevalent in the hearts of men, even after this recreation. Uh, Noah, is the first thing he does when he gets off the boat is worship, and the second thing that's mentioned is sin. Isn't that just a picture of our probably an average week? That we begin our weeks in worship, that's no mistake in our calendar. The reason we get up on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, is so that we can begin our weeks with worship, but usually the very next thing we do is mess it up. Noah was in sin to get drunk. He was not justified in this, and Moses points out his sin, but he also points out Ham's sin. But it's not the, the sole point of the text, in this single instance. What Noah, or I'm sorry, what Moses is doing is pointing out Ham's character that would be passed on to his family and become his legacy. His point is Ham's sinful character would be passed on, and, this, and the way that Ham mocked his sinful dad is contrasted with the way that Shem and Japheth showed grace to their sinful dad, who did not deserve grace. And Noah's curse that he gives, I don't want you to think of Noah, like, when I initially read this, I I imagine Noah, like, waking up hungover, and he's mad, and he just, like, curses his son. Um, That's not what's happening. Um, I I think theologically, it's important for us to understand that God is speaking a genuine curse to the the negative and sinful character of Ham and Canaan and their offspring, and he uses, um, in spite of his sin, he uses Noah as a prophetic voice here. And so he's not given, like, a magical revenge. He's not putting a magical curse on them. He is simply acknowledging what God has proclaimed. And just as Cain's legacy, we see in chapter 4 and 5, was one of evil, showing that sinful legacy carries on. Here, Ham and Canaan and their descendants are said to be cursed as well. The Canaanites would go on to become a nation that were the arch enemies of Israel in Moses' time. And in chapter 10, um, next week, I want you to read ahead to chapter 10 and 11. We'll cover both those chapters next week. But there are three main people groups that are mentioned that, that kind of branch out from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Shem, from his family come the nation of Israel. Shem, uh, sh- through Shem's lineage, you eventually get to Abraham, the father of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons and the tribes. Uh, you have God's chosen nation to reveal himself to all nations. You also have Canaan, um, who becomes a nation and the surrounding nations around Israel. In that geographical area, a small group of people that are extremely um, cursed and become enemies of God. And then you have the lineage of Japheth, who has a broad genealogy, meaning uh, mean fulfilling, I think, what verse 27 says when Noah says, May God enlarge Japheth. Um, we would refer to these nations as just the Gentiles. These are kind of all other nations, this kind of junk drawer of all the other nations that come and stem from this lineage. And verse 26 and 27 both say, let Canaan be his servant. Meaning that the Canaanites did uh, get conquered and became servants of both Israel and the other nations, the Gentiles. But verse 27 says of Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. What's important here is God is foreshadowing again That the Gentiles, which is most of us ethnically, by the way, uh, that the Gentiles will be grafted into God's chosen nation of Israel through Shem. He says, let them dwell in the tents of Shem. You can read more about this in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that God is redeeming for himself from all nations, one pure nation that we call God's kingdom. So where sin brings division and discord, the gospel and Jesus' death and resurrection bring people from all nations back into the one eternal nation. And guess what? Even Canaan serves God and his purpose eventually. The most, most scholars even think there's a double entendre that's there, that as Canaan is cursed to serve his brothers, it says he also serves the Lord in verse 26. That, that eventually God wins people over from every tribe and tongue. We see this at the very end of the book. We're studying the beginning. The end says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And this is all accomplished by another fulfilled promise, another covenant, Jesus' covenant to us that he would be the final sacrifice to save us from our sins. Jesus promised at the Last Supper that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it with us anew when he came again to receive us to himself. He has covered our shame. Again, from Genesis 2 to 9, you see these mirrored that as soon as sin happens and Noah's drunkenness, nakedness happens that we're exposed, that we're filled with shame in our sin, but Jesus is called a covering for us. That as a gracious covering, we have the death and resurrection of Jesus to vouch for us on the final day. And so as we look upon our covenantal sign this morning, we have three tables in the room, two up here and one in the back, with bread representing our Savior's body and juice representing our Savior's blood, we anticipate his return that he spoke about in Matthew 24. He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Of man, Jesus makes it clear the world around us will continue to worsen to the point that it looks like the days of Noah where the righteous upon the face of the earth are very few and the unrighteous are very many. There will be a time when God's long-suffering and patience will run out and the dam of grace that withholds his damnation and judgment will one day burst forth again. And if you're living your life in disobedience... Quit messing around. Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, but one day. God is currently being very patient and long-suffering with you, but one day his patience will run out. And who can withstand his wrath? Who can withstand his righteous judgment? The only people that can are the ones that hope in the Savior. The only ones that can are the ones that are held in a gospel ark that is built by a cross and sealed with Jesus' blood. And so as we hope in that Savior, we come to this table this morning thankful for the fact that we're saved not by anything that we can do, entered into a covenant not by us initiating it, but by God finding us in our sin. And we come with joyful hearts as we worship. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.